The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Three siblings encounter a body in a field. What happens to them next? It's a gorgeously rich scenario for a novel, especially when it's in the hands of a gifted novelist, such as today's guest, Margot Livesey. We'll be talking to Margot about her new novel called The Boy in the Field. And then, in a special bonus draft, she's going to help us choose the greatest writers in Scotland's history. That's all coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join me today. It's a tough day here in America, as usual. That seems to be the norm. Now, dark skies after dark skies. So let's look for our ray of sunshine. And here we go. We have one. Margot Livesey is here. She's back. She's been on the podcast before. She's Mrs. Jack Wilson's favorite guest, which I probably shouldn't say out loud. I mean, we've had some, we've had some close friends of Mrs. Jack Wilson's on here, too. But she likes Margot. And so I keep begging Margot to return because it's nice to have my wife listen to the podcast once in a while. Let her know that I'm not just chanting all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy a million times into the microphone. And I just kind of creeped myself out with that, which makes me think that October must be around the corner. We are going to go all out for October this year, that month of harvest and death and grim skies and goblins. We're going to have Edgar Allan Poe as our Thursday theme. Margot is awesome, as always. We even got her to do a draft, which took a little while for me to explain to her. I don't think it's how she tends to think of the world, but that's okay. We're drafting great Scottish writers. That little country has done quite a bit of production when it comes to talented writers, including Margot, of course. There must be something in the landscape. Maybe it's those dark winter nights, or maybe it's the long summer days, or maybe it's just the gorgeous vistas and the wind blasting across the heather and gorse. I love it there. And I love the people there, and I love the writers who came from there. So we will get into all of that after we talk to Margot about her new book, The Boy in the Field. Yet another brilliant novel from Margot. We are lucky to have her, people. I mean that in general. The world is lucky to have her. The world of literature is lucky to have her. And the History of Literature podcast is lucky to have her here today. Let's take a quick break and come back with some listener emails after this. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's get things started with one from Kate. Subject, Jane Austen. While cooking pasta and listening to your podcast, I heard you read an email. It seemed wordy to me, and at first I wondered, who is this overly verbose literary word slinger? Then the phrase vapidly smart came up, and lo and behold, you were reading my email. And you'd set it up with that irritating gushing about Jane Austen. What a wise guy, and how I loved it. Thank you, and continued thanks for my absolute favorite podcast. Yes, I'm gushing. You and Jane Austen, it's a strange and beautiful thing. Kate. Well, thank you, Kate. It seemed wordy. <laughs> it seemed wordy to me. That's excellent. Isn't that always the case? When you hear your own words, your own voice. Sometimes I'll hear a podcast and think, who's that weirdo droning on? Oh, whoops. <laughs> The podcast app started playing one of mine. It's the history of literature. Glad to hear again from our literary word slinger. But I do not think that you're overly verbose, Kate. I think you're just the right amount of verbose. I'm just kidding, of course. And I even like it that you do not like Jane Austen. It's a good reminder that no one is perfect and not everyone is for everyone. But you, dear listener, are just right for me. Next email. Oh, boy. We got a lot of emails about our Amelia Lanyer episode. So here we go. Subject, Amelia Lanyer. It's spelled slightly differently in this subject line. Spelled E-M-I-L-I-A-L-A-N-I-E-R, which is also correct. There are a bunch of different spellings. I went with the one on the cover of her volume of poetry, which spells Amelia with an A and an E, and Lanyer with a Y. But these are also common. This one, uh, especially for the first name, Emilia, E-M-I-L-I-A, which, of course, is an anagram for I-E-mail. How intriguing. I should say that there's no hard evidence that Emilia Lanyer sent any emails to me or anyone else. None of her emails have survived in Shakespeare's. All we have for him are some blog posts and a few tweets. Recipes, mostly. Okay. Here's some speculation that's not as fanciful. This comes from Robin. Subject, Emilia Lanyer. I enjoyed your podcast, R.E. Emilia Bassano Lanyer, and would suggest, as further evidence, William Shakespeare's Sonnet 128, assuming that she, the daughter of a musician and a well-educated and cultured woman, would possibly have been the musician addressed here. Here's the sonnet. How oft when thou my music, music placed, 
Upon that blessed wood whose motion sounds with thy sweet fingers when thou gently swayest, the wiry concord that mine ear confounds. Do I envy those jacks that nimble leap to kiss the tender inward of thy hand, whilst my poor lips, which should that harvest reap, at the wood's boldness by thee blushing stand. To be so tickled, they would change their state and situation with those dancing chips, o'er whom thy fingers walk with gentle gait, making dead wood more blessed than living lips. Since saucy jacks so happy are in this, give them thy fingers, me thy lips, to kiss. Robin. Thank you, Robin. I can remember this sonnet coming up when I was doing the research on Amelia Lanyer. If memory serves, there's been a lot of effort to try to place Amelia at the keyboard, or the virginal, as it was called then. This instrument that seems to be here in Shakespeare, uh, Sonnet 128. You remember, I'm sure listeners remember, that Amelia grew up in a fancy household with a patron or a foster mother or employer. We don't exactly know the relationship, but we know that the woman was determined to educate her, and she may have had a virginal. Seems likely that she had one, and Amelia may have learned lessons. I think it hasn't been nailed down, uh, although people have tried. If it could be nailed down, it wouldn't be conclusive but it would help us round out our speculative picture that perhaps Shakespeare was watching Amelia play the keyboard and was inspired to write this poem. Amelia might very well be the Dark Lady. Message from Christine. Oh, and thank you for the email, Robin. Message from Christine in San Francisco. You may remember her from before, too. She goes on long walks listening to the podcast. She also responded to the Amelia Lanyer episode. Hello, Jack. Yes, I do feel like my wings have been clipped, literally. If you are ever in San Francisco, please let me know. It would be so fun to do a listener event of some kind when this is all over, even if it were just to take over a wine bar. Oh, wow. Okay, San Francisco's on our list, our world tour. We're going to have to have t-shirts with all of these locations on the back. We've got Brazil, we've got the French Vineyard, we've got, where else, William Trevor, we're going to Cork, we've got ah, so many different places we've been invited. Iceland, another one. Listener there is going to make me waffles. It's uh, going to be exciting once this pandemic is over. We'll put it all together. Mike and I will go on our vagabonding. <laughs> Okay, uh, back to the email from Christine. I just finished listening to your episode on Amelia Bassano, and I have to say that is my most favorite episode ever. Three exclamation marks. I think what I find so compelling about your show is your depth of empathy. I echo so many listeners when they say that they have cried while listening to your show. I am that crazy girl who walks around San Francisco by herself and starts crying while crossing the street because I am listening to your show. How do I begin to express how much I appreciated that episode? I listened to it several times in one day. It was just so good. I am reminded of Nietzsche saying that once a sentiment is expressed, it dies. I am utterly incapable of expressing how much I enjoyed it. I have been obsessed with Shakespeare and Shakespearean criticism since I happened upon Harold Bloom's Invention of the Human about two decades ago, and your episode reminded me of that same indelible passion that Bloom had 
and it is exhilarating. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. May you and your family stay safe. Christine. Hmm. Thank you, Christine. Wow. I don't know what to say. I'm just doing the best I can. You know, I don't really set out to do this. I mean, empathy, absolutely. That's in me. That's definitely part of this. It's how I read. It's how I think. It's something I try to expand in myself. I believe in empathy, and I connect it to literature. But I'm not trying to make people cry. Sometimes I know it's likely to result, as in the Brothers Karamazov episode, where we were dealing with such a painful topic, and our listener was in such pain, grieving the loss of a young child. That episode took a lot out of me, and I cried during the episode a few times. Got choked up uh, by what I was talking about. I cried also getting ready for some other episodes, too, where I've gotten choked up by the beauty of a passage or something that really resonated with me, the Gogol episode, the Chekhov episode. Look at that, three Russians we're talking about here. Amanda Stern made me cry when she described her life and her discovery of Rilke. So I know that it happens, but here's what I think is going on. Well, first of all, let me tell you that uh, about how I hear the show when I listen. I think... How odd it is, the History of Literature podcast. I don't think it's good. I think it's weird. I think, why don't other shows sound like this? And that takes me back to a professor I had who, after writing my exams, sent an email. This was over Christmas break. She sent an email to the class and said, every 10 years or so, I have to decide whether to give a student an A or an F. This time... I'm going to give the student an A. And then she included my two exam responses. And I thought, what the heck? <laughs> an A or an F? Isn't this what everyone else is writing? I didn't start out thinking that I was so weird. I was just trying to do the best I could. Thank God I got an A in that class. And I suppose I should have been proud of it. But I also thought, why? I was confused. I still am, really. I wish I knew how to get an A or a nice B+. Because I'm not trying to run risks here. I'm just doing the best I can. But, tears on the sidewalk. I think that's coming from the listener. I think that's coming from the listener. The authors, too, that we're talking about. The works and the listeners. I think that's what's happening. Here's my theory. There's so much bad news in the world. Let's take that away, or let's keep that in mind as the backdrop. Let's say that life is mostly frustrating and boring. We all work jobs that drain our spirit, or even if that's too harsh, they leave us tired. We're all marching along in this exhausting way. There's very little out there that gives us meaning or gives us hope. Some people find it in religion. Some people find it in family. Sometimes people can get it from personal success, or the creative process, but all of these things have their ups and downs too, right? Religion isn't always sustaining. Sometimes doubt will enter the picture, or frustration with organized religion, or fatigue. Personal success is fleeting. You chase rabbits that keep eluding you, and they multiply faster than you can catch them anyway. Family can bring heartache and miscommunication and arguments and devastation and exhaustion. The creative process 
is 1% excitement and 99% grueling hard work and disappointment. And then there's the drumbeat of steady bad news. Local news is crime and budget cuts and crumbling infrastructure. National news is greed and corruption and lies and dysfunction. Global news is a burning planet. Where do you go to find love? Where do you go to find joy? Where do you go to find hope? And so, this is my theory. You go for a walk, you put in the podcast, and you hear my voice talking about Jane Austen or James Baldwin or Raymond Carver or Samuel Pepys or William Shakespeare, and you hear a voice, the guy who doesn't know how to get an A and doesn't know how to avoid an F, and he's just chatterboxing away. He's not the global news. He's not the local news. He's not your family. He's not religion. He's books. And he's absorbed all that heaviness too, but he's taken a break from it for the moment. He's lost himself in literature and he's paddled his way back up to the surface and now he's talking about it. And he's got all that sadness in him but the writers from across the centuries have spoken to him, and for a moment, they'll speak to you through him and his enthusiasm, and they'll say, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You're here. You're alive. You're you. And it's okay. And the tears come, if they come, not because of me, but because I'm the vehicle to tell you that. You're you and it's okay. We will get through this, people. We'll make it. We're going to do our best. And that's a message that I believe in, even if it's not one that I set out to say. I set out to talk about these books and these writers, and their their effort shines through, and I get excited, and I guess that comes through too. And the funny thing about me is that in most of life, I get Fs. That's been the story. One failure after another. I try my hardest, and it's just a disaster. The people in power, the people who judge, who deliver their judgment, speak to me, and their judgment is, you fail. I go to bed thinking about that, and I wake up still thinking about it. But on the podcast, this humble little podcast, there are a handful of listeners, and maybe now a few more than a handful, who say, Thank you, Jack, who say, I'll give you an A. I recognize what you're doing. I can appreciate the weird. It's an A or an F with you. I'll give you an A. And I give all the credit in the world to the writers I'm talking about and the great novels and short stories and poetry that they handed off. But it still feels good to get that A. But I also feel kind of sad because I know that your response means must mean that the world is a dark place and there must be people like you looking for rays of hope. And I wish I could do more to help. Thank you for the email, Christine. Best of luck to you out there in San Francisco. Wow. Oh, that history of literature tour. The south of France, the vineyard, Iceland, Canada. We've been invited there a few times. Brazil, of course. I think we have three stops in Brazil, at least. This is going to be a great tour. Mike and I will travel around like Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. (laughs) Keep a light on for us, listeners. We will need it. Probably a warm bed and a cup of tea here and there, too. And books and conversations 
and friendly faces. I can't wait. Margot Livesey, after this. Joining me now is Margot Livesey, New York Times bestselling author of The Flight of Gemma Hardy and many other works, and whose latest novel, The Boy in the Field, is available now on Amazon and in bookstores. It's a People Magazine Book of the Week, an O Magazine Best Book of the Fall, and a USA Today book not to miss. And as if these accolades were not enough, Margot has the honor of being Mrs. Jack Wilson's favorite guest on this humble little podcast. Margot Livesey, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. It is a huge honor to be here once again, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Oh, good. So, Margot, I know you're on a book tour, and when you came here before, I feel like you were sprinkling in uh, some some podcasts and online publicity events along with actual readings in actual stores. Given where we are in the pandemic and the quarantine, is everything virtual for you these days? Yes, sadly, everything has been virtual in various ways. Uh, I'm based in Cambridge in Boston, and Mm -hmm. a couple of my local shops are open. So I've been able to go in in a socially distanced way and sort of wave at my novel across Mm. the shop. (laughs) Um, But all the events and conversations are are online, yes, Mm. are virtual. Yeah. And there's nothing quite like, I mean, even though the audience might be much bigger uh, for this podcast, for example, than whatever fit into a bookstore, but there's nothing quite like, I would imagine, after spending all of that time writing a book, to be able to see faces and, and shake hands with people who have read and enjoyed the book. Absolutely. I do really miss that spark and that sense of being part of a of a community of readers you mm. know i think reading is a very intimate activity and when readers come together even though they've never met each other you, you know they form a they form a connection very rapidly and of course i miss that that mm. said it's you know i'm able to go to providence in the morning and chicago in the evening right <laughs> <laughs> um so that's a, a really wonderful thing and um you know I have been able to have conversations with readers, which I would perhaps never have been able to have in real life. Right. Yeah, I feel like when this is all over, we're all going to be as if we were shot out of a cannon and do all kinds of traveling and in-person meetings and face-to-face meetings. And hopefully that day will come uh, not too long from now. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I always loved that Ann Tyler novel. Is it The Armchair Tourist or The Armchair Traveler? Is um, it The Accidental Tourist? The Accidental Tourist, yeah. yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, you know, how somewhat, I mean, for me, reading has always been a method of transportation, mm, but yeah. never, be, never before has it been the only method right. of transportation. <laughs> and 100% like, substitute. 
Yeah, I've got lots of frequent flyer miles as a reader nowadays. (laughs) Right. Well, we're going to put that to the test. We're going to do something fun here today. You're going to help us with a mini draft of the greatest uh, Scottish authors of all time. Listeners to the podcast will be familiar with the drafts that I've done with other guests. Usually we take five picks each, but in this case, we'll just choose three each because I want to start with some talk about your latest book, The Boy in the Field, which I love. Let's start with where the book starts in 1999 in Oxford with three teenagers. So who are they and how would you describe them? Matthew, Zoe and Duncan Lang live in a small town, a small Cotswold town outside Oxford. Their father is an artisanal blacksmith. Mm. Their mother is a solicitor working mostly in family law. And the three teenagers go to the same high school. In Britain, there's no middle school. There's a primary school and then a high school. Uh, Matthew is 17, um, heading for university. Zoe is 15, nearly 16. And Duncan, the youngest, who is adopted, is 13 Hmm. and already sees himself as an artist. Right. And what happens to them on that fateful day as they walk home from school? Um, They uh, walk home from school, something they don't usually do, um, and they find in a field a boy, a young man who's been assaulted. He's Hmm. been stabbed. And they they get help for him because it's 1999. That doesn't mean using a mobile phone. It means standing by the side of the road and flagging someone down. And the boy, they go home. The boy is taken off in an ambulance and recovers. But that afternoon, those few minutes in the field of being in the boy's presence is like a fault line in each of their lives. Mm. And they each go off on a kind of what you might call a different quest. Yeah. Uh, um, Matthew, the oldest, um, becomes a kind of detective. There mm-hmm. is a real, there is also a real detective in the novel, but Matthew becomes intent on solving the crime, on finding the boy's assailant. Zoe becomes intent on finding someone who sees her not as a sister or a daughter. She wants to be seen as Zoe, and she goes looking for the person who will see her that way. Mm-hmm. And Duncan, um, really for the first time, suddenly thinks, I need to find my birth mother if I possibly can. Mm. I, I, love, I love my family, but I would just like to know about where I come from. Right. So before we get into how those three, uh, and and I also want to ask you about their parents as well, but uh, I wanted to mention a couple of different stories. We've heard on this podcast an Alice Monroe story called The Love of a Good Woman, and there's a famous Stephen King story called The Body that was made into the Rob Reiner movie Stand By Me, which also involved young people encountering a body. I saw the differences immediately as I was reading your book, and you've already given us enough that I think listeners will probably hear some differences as well. But I was just wondering if you had either of those works in mind when you set out to write The Boy in the Field. I'm ashamed to say I didn't. I don't think I knew that the Bob Reiner film was based on a Stephen King Mm, story, Um, (laughs) to my chagrin. Um, (laughs) And the Alice Munro story I I read years ago, but I I was not consciously thinking of it. I mean, who knows how one's unconscious is working. Right. Um, 
But I was consciously thinking about the number of um, thrillers and detective stories that begin with someone finding a body, and it's usually the body of usually the body of a young woman. Mm. And mm-hmm. I really wanted to subvert that trope. Um, I chose to make it a young man, and I chose to make the young man recover. So right. I, was, I was both sort of going to the familiar and changing the familiar. Yeah, well, one of the big differences between your book and the other two that I mentioned is the boy uh, hasn't died. The The body yeah. in the field is, is not yeah. a dead body. And another one is that both of those other books have a kind of distance between the children and the older generation where the children are sort of unable to to speak or reveal what they've seen or they have trouble communicating with the older people in their lives and and the parents in your book seem different from the beginning so who are they and and how do they fit into the story here well i find it quite interesting nowadays that family has become almost synonymous with dysfunctional mm. and i wanted my family to be functional um right. a family that could be resilient in the face of change or loss or all the things that time brings um betsy, betsy and hal are perhaps a surprising couple in that betsy probably earns a great deal more money and is much better educated than hal mm-hmm. hal hal is someone who aspired to university and then found his life changed when he was 16 and his father who owned the forge, the blacksmith's business, before him, very suddenly died, and mm-hmm. he ended up taking it over. And I, I thought there was something very interesting in the combination of Betsy and Hal both, in the way they preside over their children's lives, and they're very present to their children's lives, but they each have lives of their own that they're quite deeply involved in and find to varying degrees satisfying. Right. And just in talking about the differences between the mother and the father, the mother also with her expertise in family law, she kind of steps in in a way as it relates to this boy that they have seen. She seems to have some some experience and some expertise to apply that uh, gives her kind of an interesting, I thought, uh, role to play with the three children. Yeah, yeah, no, I would very much agree. And, and I think her response to, to Duncan's desire to find his first mother and the way she enters into that quest, um, this, I find it, I think there's something very touching about it because it's also in some ways quite frightening to her mm. and to, to think of Duncan finding his first mother. Right. Right. So your characters are drawn, as usual, so strongly with such depth and insight uh, as you apply so much intelligence and tenderness toward them. And in this novel, uh, the chapters begin to alternate points of view among Matthew, Zoe, and Duncan. What was that like for you as a writer? Well, I had the fantasy at first that maybe I could use the omniscient point of view, which I use in my opening chapter when they the three children find the boy. Mm-hmm. But I soon realized that part of what really interested me was how differently each of them saw the world. Mm-hmm. And that really, for me, meant being devoted to their points of view one at a time. Yeah. Um, 
But I wrote the novel, um, I wrote the novel as it were continuously. I didn't write a long Matthew section and then chop right. it up. Right. That was going to be one of my questions. <laughs> yeah. You, you, so it unfolded for you as in writing the way it unfolds for us as readers. Pretty much. There were some adjustments, but I think the thing for me was that I wasn't thinking about alternating them in a in a mechanical way, as it were. Mm-hmm. I was always thinking about the bigger story. I was always thinking, what does the larger concerns of the novel need next? Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself drawn to any one in particular more than the others? You know, at first I was found it easier to write Duncan and Zoe mm-hmm. um, for various reasons. Duncan, the young artist, the portrait of the young artist, um, and Zoe, you know, the the teenager who wants to be part of her family and wants to escape. But as I began to, as I worked more on Matthew, I also became very involved in his worldview and that desire to create order and to fix things. You know, something bad has happened and he wants to make it better. Mm. And I found that very appealing. Yeah. Did you find that it was, uh, I mean, as you're a writer facing the blank page and uh, having to deal with all of the issues that writers always do, the procrastination and and that kind of thing, did you find that it was giving you, uh, that it was helpful to your process to be able to say, I'm just doing a short burst with this person and then I can't wait to get back to uh, one of the others? I I did like using the short sections. Um, One of my aesthetic ambitions for the novel, which I know doesn't sound terribly appetizing, was to write a short novel in which a lot happened. So I was trying to use my short sections to create tension and suspense and momentum. (laughs) Wait, you said that that doesn't sound very appetizing to the reader? Well, I worry that when you when someone says aesthetic ambitions, it sounds I don't know rather rather fancy or posh. Oh, right. Okay. Because <laughs> um, what your description of it sounded to me like, well, that sounds like you're giving the people what they want—a short novel where a lot happens. That's uh... yeah. yeah. I think a better way to put it is that I'm always trying to keep my sisters in Scotland awake a little bit longer at night. <laughs> Right. Well, this is uh, that's pointing me toward our draft because that fits right into one of the main themes I had as I was researching Scottish writers. But let's not leave the book yet. Is there anything else you'd like listeners to know? I didn't want to give too much away. I didn't want to spoil any of the the twists and turns of the plot points here. But uh, is there anything else you'd like listeners to know about what they might expect from the novel? I think I'd like to mention two things. Um, One is that uh, Duncan um, acquires a guide in his search for his first mother. Mm. And Mm -hmm. that guide is Lily, um, a dog that he adopts. Um, He's adopted and now he adopts Lily. And she becomes a very integral part of the the novel. And um, it's not that she exactly talks, but she conveys her opinions at certain crucial moments. Mm. Right. Uh, um, and she's an almost sort of shamanistic figure, if you will. Right. <laughs> well, while also having dog-like qualities. Right. Uh, um, and the other was to mention that um, the the detective in the novel and um, hmm. how the, there is a real detective in the novel and he becomes a kind of guide to Matthew, if you will, or a confidant for Matthew. And... 
I, underneath the story of Matthew, Zoe and Duncan, I wanted to have this detective story going on. So that's the, the spine of the novel, if you will. Right. Um, but it, I also wanted to once again subvert the, the detective story by making my detective much more questioning about um, the, the ability to solve crimes and indeed whether solving crimes even makes a difference in some ways. Mm, right. Um, uh, well, that I found that to be a fascinating part of the book. It is a wonderful book. I hope my readers all run out or log online, I guess, in these days and buy it. Now, let me let me <laughs> ask, let me ask you this. So, you were born in Scotland and you've lived in America for years. It reminds me of the story of T.S. Eliot, the American who moved to England and lived his adult life there. And I heard a story once about W.H. Auden the British writer or poet who lived in America. And they asked Auden, uh, are you a British writer or an American writer? And he said, go ask T.S. Eliot what he is. And I'm the opposite. So <laughs> with that in mind, knowing that this is kind of an impossible question, do you consider yourself a Scottish writer, an American writer, a Scottish-American writer, just a writer full stop? Or is this uh, a question that you ever have to wrestle with in your mind? In my mind, I think of myself as a Scottish writer, mm, mm -hmm. um, but more accurately, perhaps also just a writer, just yeah. just someone who's trying to create a world that the reader will want to spend some time in. Yeah, and you are a citizen of the world. <laughs> yes, and also <laughs> of a couple of countries in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scotland is one of my favorite places in the world. I took a trip there last summer, and I was just blown away. Actually... The podcast was on kind of a hiatus at that point. I was kind of burned out, and Edinburgh recharged my batteries. I was blown away by the literary culture and the value that's placed on education and writing and writers. And Scotland has just been full of amazing writers and amazing works written by those individuals. So we're going to try to choose our favorites. And I okay. am going to start out by taking Margot Livesey off the table. I doubt you were going to pick her, but I won't either because it doesn't seem fair. So aside from Margot Livesey, who is your choice for the greatest Scottish writer of all time? Well, I'm going to pick the Scottish writer I have known the longest, namely Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm, okay, good. Um, I read his Child's Garden of Verse as a as a quite small child and loved it. You know, I have uh, a little shadow that goes in and out with me and what can be the use of it is more than I can see. I mean, yeah. I, I adored those poems. And, yeah. uh, and then uh, as a teenager and an adult went on to read um, the great, the great novels, uh, Kidnapped, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde yeah. and um, his last great novel, uh, The Weir of Hermiston mm. and, which I know is unfinished, but I think is so fabulous. Yeah. Ah, uh, well, that's a great pick. Uh, we have done an episode on him, which I think came after I returned from Scotland. Just such an effortless, I, I don't know how effortless it was for him to write, but effortless to read. He's so much fun and the sense of adventure is so rollicking and, and high-pitched. He is, uh, he was definitely on my list. I actually, I thought you might take him number one, so I pushed him down a little bit so I could prepare some others, but he was in my top five for sure. Cool. Okay, so I'm going to take as my first pick uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who oh, 
is another very readable yeah. writer. Even today, a hundred years later, it's kind of like listening to a really smart friend tell the best stories you've ever heard. Holmes and Watson are two of the great characters as individuals, and together they're one of the great. I love pairings of people. I've realized I, I just I'm always fascinated by stories about Lennon and McCartney or Mozart and Salieri. I love even when you were talking earlier about how you wanted to subvert expectations a little bit with a, a non-dysfunctional family. I was thinking of the thin man and how Nick and Nora oh, are like a happy yeah. marriage instead of, you know, the yeah. usual detective who's dealing with a broken marriage or, a, you know, a, a frustrated uh, ex-girlfriend or ex-spouse or something. So I love those those pairings where the strengths and weaknesses of one character highlight the strengths and expose the weaknesses of the other, which is kind of a good Holmes and Watson uh, thing. And, and these are, you know, they're books for kids, but books for adults too, kind of like Robert Louis Stevenson. It uh, yeah. can be appreciated yeah. by, uh, you know, my kids who are uh, they started reading both of them when they were in their preteens and teens, but it's also something that, you know, I could pick up today and enjoy. Yeah. And I love the way, um, you know, Holmes and Watson, they have that quality of, you know, they, they go into the world of disorder, the world of violence mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. sin, and, and they make things right again. There's something both suspenseful and comforting about reading their novels. Yeah, and it's it's the power of reason and rationality that it's, uh, you know, it, and I think it's no accident that Conan Doyle had some training as a, a medical, in the medical field. And the idea that you can observe things and, you know, there's always those great moments where it's almost like a superpower that Holmes can, you know, see a man and know from the color of mud on his shoes and the way that he combs his hair and all <laughs> yeah, those things right. that he's yeah. a military man re recently returned from the war where he didn't see action, but he was mildly wounded and now he has a baby. And, you know, it's like all, yeah. <laughs> all those things yeah. that you think, boy, wouldn't it be nice if reality could snap tight this, you know, could snapshot this tight, if we could put it in order, as you say, that uh, I, that just with the power of our minds, we could make sense of it all. Yeah. No, and that is, I think, um, yeah, the a big part of the role of the detective, um, a huge part of the popularity of detective fiction, that as our world gets increasingly disorderly, yeah. we, we seek that that comfort. Yeah. And and we see this in your book as well. There's it, it lets you have these this double narrative go that, you know, there's the narrative of the detectives as they're on the chase. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's also the narrative that you're putting together retroactively of what happened to lead to the body in the field or what happened to lead to the jewel theft or, you know, the the, the tracking the, the criminal's footsteps, uh, so to speak, before the crime. Yes, no, and that's uh, that sort of double vision is a big part of the pleasure of Sherlock Holmes. I completely agree. I'm sure you, when you were in Edinburgh, you saw his his statue at the yes. top of Leaf Walk. Yeah. Yes, uh, they they do they honor their writers in Edinburgh. That's yeah. one of the yeah. one of the great things. We did a great literary cities, and I think I took Edinburgh as my number one pick for that. Um, it's just such a it's such a nice atmosphere when you're there and you see all of these uh, tributes paid to these writers. Yeah. Okay, so who are you taking as your number two? 
I am taking a book that may not be very well known outside of Scotland, um, Lewis Grassic Gibbon's Sunset Song, which mm. is the first volume of his trilogy, A Sunset Quare, uh, quare meaning choir, as in choir of paper. And it's a very, it's a really wonderful novel written um, in a kind of, written rather like some of Stevenson's work in in broad Scots. And it's set on a farm outside Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland. And it's about a girl, Chris, growing up on that farm and meeting her future husband and her future husband going off to the First World War. Mm. And it's just, it's a... It, it's a very a graphic Gibbon um, was a, a, a journalist and he wrote Sunset Song quite near the end of his life. He wrote it in six weeks. Um, so so we're told. Um, and he died the year after he finished the trilogy. He died of peritonitis at the age mm. of, I think, 36. Yeah. And the novel has that. I mean, who knows? Perhaps I'm imagining this, but the novel has that that quality of just pouring out and he wrote it in London and uh, you feel his love of the Scottish land that mm. he can't see and his love of these difficult cranky people and, right right uh, and it's one of those books that Scottish um, teenagers now I've not when I was a teenager we did not read it at school but now Scottish teenagers read it at school in the way that maybe Americans read to kill a mockingbird oh, or right you know, Huckleberry Finn or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And it's, it's a 1932 novel. I have not read it. Uh, I, and I'll confess, I did not have Lewis Grassic Gibbon on my list of great Scottish writers. So this will be new for me. I'll have to go seek it out. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I, I should send you a copy. We'll have to talk about that after the program. <laughs> okay. So I will take my number two. I'm going to reach back a little farther into history and take one of my all-time favorites, James Boswell, uh, who might be my favorite writer of all time. I, I have to say his biography of Dr. Johnson is one of my favorite books. I first read it on a uh, uh, in, my, in bed in Taiwan when I was living there. I had a mattress on the floor. And I have this vivid memory of the air conditioner blasting in this little room. And I was surrounded by this pile of books that was higher than my bed. And I just immersed myself in the world of uh, Dr. Johnson's London. I just love Boswell, how earnest and eager he is in that book and, and the writing style. I love his humor. I love his his love for Johnson and how he's so humble and gracious and just always amazed by Johnson. And I I, I guess here we go. There's another duo that I'm talking about here. Maybe that's Yes. I was going to say. Watson and Holmes reincarnated. Exactly. With a with a uh their detective work is in uh, literary criticism, maybe. I love how he's he's always sticking up for Scotland in that book and Johnson is always kind of dismissive of it. But um, you know, Bob Boswell is always standing up for uh, the Scottish Enlightenment and and uh, the the high quality of education and and so on in Scotland. It's it's almost like a little uh, grumbling that he's got going uh, uh, ongoing with Johnson. So and then just uh, to talk about him and his literary achievement, I think it's it's got a claim to be the greatest biography that's ever been written. He sort of. 
He's in on the short list of great biographers. It's hard to think of a, a biographer who is better to kind of own a field like that. We've sort of, I mean, you could say Conan Doyle kind of dominates the field of detective fiction. You could say Robert Louis Stevenson dominates the, the world of adventure, historic, or I guess just adventure novels. Yeah. You know, it's it's pretty good for a, a country the size of Scotland to have three genres that it, it uh, has such such leading figures in. Uh, yeah, no, uh, a little over five million people, but maybe we're maybe we're very carefully chosen five million people. <laughs> You're punching above your weight. <laughs> <laughs> so who would you like to take as your third pick? Well, I love that you chose Boswell. Um, I really struggled with my third pick. I auditioned a number of people, Jeff Torrington, mm. uh, Kate Atkinson, James mm. Kelman, Ian Rankin, Louise Walsh. And finally, I decided on Muriel Spark. Oh, yes. Good choice. And, and, you know, she wrote maybe, I don't know, 20 novels, perhaps. She died um, in died in 2006. Um, and I, I was just rereading one of her novels um, last couple of nights, uh, The Bachelors. And it has this absolutely wild plot. It's so, it was written, I think, in the 60s, but it is so modern and irreverent and pungent and clever. Mm -hmm. And it makes you as a reader feel that you are clever, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, is, which is a really nice feeling to have. Um, yeah. uh, she never condescends to her readers or to her characters. Um, yeah. And I love how funny she is. Yes, um, she's very slippery and very yeah. She's 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 quirky in a way that doesn't feel too practiced or too too intentional. Just almost like it's just natural to her. Exactly, and I think um, you know so many people know really only the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, and sometimes only the film of the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, but. Right. She has so many other really wonderful novels, and I, I completely recommend uh, if you have a a long way to the train station, <laughs> reach for Muriel Spark. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's a great pick. She, I had her at uh, number seven on my list. Oh. Um, so she was uh, almost in my top five. Right. So I will take my third pick. And I really struggled with this. There's so many people that I wanted to put in here. But why don't I go ahead and take someone? Um, I will take David Hume, who um, another, <laughs> another leader in his field. He's such a great philosopher. And he had such a, a a bent for literature. You know, he wrote histories, he wrote essays, and he, I've got some quotes here. This is from a biographer of Hume who said, quote, welding philosophy and learning together with literature, he set himself up not as a specialist, but as man of letters, according to the intellectual ideals of his age. The life of letters was the burning ambition of David Hume, and few have ever pursued that life with purer and more steadfast devotion. And he really, there's also a claim that he was sort of the first uh, distinguished man of letters in Britain to earn enough from literature alone, that uh, if you count Shakespeare as as a stockholder and a manager and an actor, as well as a writer and 
and Dr. Johnson and others received government pensions. But Hume was determined to write for the public at large. And and then just his the brilliance of his philosophy, which was not really recognized in his time except for uh, Adam Smith, who was also on my short list, uh, his closest friend who saw the value in his philosophy. It's it's a very, uh, he had a, a, a full life, but it was not necessarily one where he was recognized until uh, generations later. Uh, and so I think he, you know, his philosophy sort of earned that for him uh, posthumously. But what else have I got here? There's so many other other David Hume yeah. sto- uh, stories and and uh, little snippets of his life that I could read here, but I think I'll just have to do a, a full episode on David Hume at some point. Oh, that would be fantastic! And again, he has a wonderful statue at the top of the Royal yes. Mile. Right. Um, it, it's just, uh, <laughs> um, and and of course, um, you know, we haven't even mentioned people like Robert Burns and Walter Scott and yep. James Hogg. Um, yeah. And Burns and Scott, especially, I think people will be surprised that they didn't make our list because they're so identified with Scotland and and yes. and Scottish history and and both of them. I mean, you could say Walter Scott is kind of a a, a grandfather figure in the world of Scottish novels, and Burns, you could say the same thing for Scottish poetry. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I have you. I don't know if you went to um, Abbotsford in your Scottish travels, but you can see like Dickens, you know, that Scott was very much a self-made man who made quite a lot of money by his writing and, Mm. you know, created this little stately home for himself. And you can still see his library of 16,000 volumes. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, they were both, you could say, were pioneers in this, uh, if we're looking at sort of Scott, Scottish authors who lead their field. Another one I considered was J.K. Rowling, who uh, oh, yes. is, you know, the uh, with Harry Potter, it's it's rare for a, uh, an author in her lifetime to have theme parks and, <laughs> and so on. I yes. mean, her... <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I bumped her down a little bit. I don't know what exactly is going on with her right now, but I, I feel like... Uh, her her legacy is still being written, and I, I didn't want to wade into the politics of that. But I do think, you know, 100 years from now, if I had to, to place money on books that will be read 100 years from now, I think the Harry Potter books are probably uh, uh, about as safe of a bet as you can get. J.M. Barry was another one I considered, the P- author of Peter oh, Pan. Of course, and, yes. Uh, yeah, and Kenneth Graham, The Wind in the Willows, is a Hello. Scottish yeah. writer. I had uh, Ian Rankin as well. I was thinking about Val McDermid, uh, Ian Banks, and John Buchan, who's kind of a favorite of mine uh, from The 39 Steps, uh, but I haven't read a lot of his other books. Uh, Alexander McCall Smith was kind of the other one on my list. Yeah. No, I mean, John Buchan. um, Oh, Buchan, you say. I say Buchan. (laughs) She says, taking the high ground. (laughs) Um, you know, he was a novelist I read um, obsessively as a child, mm. as a teenager. And when I went back to reread his work, you know, it was striking. I had completely not noticed the misogyny. Mm. And, right. and then in some of his works, the anti-Semitism, you know, I just read right over it because mm. the stories were so gripping. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's good. I'm one- glad I uh, didn't have him in my top three. Yeah. So it is one of those perplexing things um, 
when a writer you loved as a child, you suddenly thought, now, wait a minute, there are some shortcomings here. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me give you my theory now about all of these writers we took on our list. You know, Walter Scott, you could say this about certainly Conan Doyle, Robert Louis Stevenson, and uh, you, when you're talking about writing for your sisters, readability is such a, there's such a premium on readability and on a gripping story. And I'm wondering if there are, I mean, one theory I had was that, you know, there are uh, long winter nights and, and you know, <laughs> and a, a, <laughs> a, a forbidding landscape. And, you know, there's a lot of reason to to uh, be huddled around a fire or, you know, sitting in a, a living room or something and, and telling stories and that that might be part of the tradition. I also wondered if there was something about the Scottish relationship with England and with London and a feeling of, you know, that they would be looked down upon. And so they kind of had to go around the gatekeepers and say, you know what, I'll write such popular works that the people will respect me and make it impossible for you to ignore me, you in the publishing industry. I, I know a lot of these writers had a bit of a chip on their shoulder or they were, you know, ignored for a time or or dismissed for a time. They had to break their way into publishing in a way that, that maybe someone who was London-born would have, or Oxford or, or Cambridge educated might have kind of handed to them. I'm wondering if you've ever thought about the readability of Scottish writers and if you have any theories as to why that's there's such a premium placed on that. I do think that um, Scotland is, is uh, to some extent, and certainly was, a colonized country. And you can see in the work of um, Robert Louis Stevenson and uh, Robert Burns in particular, they go back and forth between broad Scots which they write in, but they know will mean they can't, they won't be widely read. And then writing a much purer English, which they know will make them accessible to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. And I'd say one reason that Lewis Grassic Gibbon's Sunset Song didn't achieve much recognition for so long was because it is mostly in broad Scots. And you sort of have to, or at least speaking for myself, you have to to work to get into it. Um, mm. So, and I, so many Scottish writers, I think, sort of had almost two languages. They were passing for English, and then they had their 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 mother tongue, if you will. Mm. Right. So and, yeah, I think you're yeah, I think you're definitely onto something. Yeah. So maybe maybe given that those two languages, what would transcend them would be a really good story, a story that, it, you know, it wouldn't be something where you could write a book that was just based on something very subtle. And uh, I, I guess I'm struggling for the right word, but I'm thinking of just the that feeling that the writer is grabbing you by the lapels and telling you this great story that you just can't stop listening to seems to be so common in these Scottish writers that we're talking about. Yes, and I think that does come both from what you describe and also from the tradition, rather similar to the Irish tradition, the tradition of the Cayley, mm. the, mm -hmm. those um, Saturday night gatherings when people played music and sang and told stories that still continue, particularly on the west coast of Scotland. Right. Um, storytelling was, was really prized. But I also think we ought to remember in the spirit of Boswell and David Hume that Scotland 
was an intellectual center. There really was a Scottish Enlightenment. And yeah. there, was, there were powerful publishing houses in Edinburgh. There was the Edinburgh Review, which, for instance, Charlotte Bronte's father subscribed to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't a provincial backwater in right. in the eighteenth nineteenth centuries. Adam Smith is a good example of this, where he was he attended the University of Glasgow at age fourteen, and then he won a scholarship to Oxford, and he got there, and he was not impressed by the quality of teaching. He thought the professors at Glasgow had been better, and that at Oxford they were rich and complacent and had stopped really uh, progressing a while ago, he thought. And and he was caught reading a copy of David Hume's uh, Treatise of Human Nature, and the book was confiscated, and he was punished. He was sort of an example of, or his example, I guess, suggests that England and, and academia in England, maybe the intelligentsia of England, had kind of atrophied a bit. And Scotland was there to, in the spirit of inquiry or the spirit of intellectual progress, was... Uh, there was a, a greater freedom for the writers there. Yeah, and also I think for other disciplines too, for engineering, um, mm. the, the the wonderful uh, Forth, Forth Rail Bridge, the wonderful bridge across the, the Forth, River Forth estuary, um, and in medicine as well, that um, there really was um, a, a spirit of inquiry, a spirit of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, speaking of a spirit of some sort, I have a, su- <laughs> I have a surprise bonus question for you. Oh. <laughs> Are you ready? I, I'm psyched. <laughs> okay. The quarantine is over. The world has been vaccinated, including you. The doorbell rings. You look around, you open the door and look around, but no one is there. Feeling uneasy, you return to your kitchen and make yourself some tea, but nothing seems familiar. You've entered the world of the uncanny. The doorbell rings again, startling you. This time, you cautiously open the door and peer out. Down here, genius, you hear in a raspy cigar smoker's voice. You look down. Percy the bad chick is on your step. <laughs> now, for <laughs> let me pause here. For listeners who don't recall, Percy the Bad Chick is a character in a children's book who has haunted you for decades. Okay, I will continue. Let me in, Percy says, dropping his cigar and grinding it out with his foot. I want to talk to you. Do you invite him in to hear what he has to say, or do you close the door and lock it? I could never say no to Percy the Bad Chick. <laughs> he is my lifelong hero and my oh, lifelong role, role model. <laughs> Absolutely. No, there's no denying Percy. I, I, I don't approve of cigars, but for Percy, I'd do anything. Yeah, I, I had him grind it out. I thought you might re- object to the, the cigar inside the house, so I had him grind it out before you let him in. Uh, okay, well, I was confused. I thought Percy sort of haunted you that he was bad and it it gave you a taste of that that you were a little bit afraid of your affinity with Percy that you might be bad when you saw Percy I, I you're right it's not a simple situation I mean <laughs> I, you, because Percy was bad but then he got rewarded in a way for being bad and rose to dominate the farmyard right. and when I tried some of the, some similar strategies, or to my mind, similar strategies, <laughs> I did not get rewarded, and I did not rise to dominate <laughs> the playground. 
So you'd want to ask him for some tips. Exactly. I would have him in to say, tell me how you do it and tell me how I can be more like you. (laughs) Well, that may be your secret desire, but I think the rest of us are quite glad to have you as you are, Margot Livesey. I hope you enjoyed this look at Scottish writers. The new book is called The Boy in the Field, a novel which everyone should run out and buy. Thank you for joining me and for helping me with this draft on the history of literature. Thank you so much. This was an absolute delight. And if you do Boswell in depth, can I come back? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Let's put that on our calendar. Fantastic. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to my listener emails, Kate, Robin, and Christine. You are the best. And to Margot Livesey, who is also the best. Wasn't that great? I love the episodes where she stops by. Go buy her books, people. You won't be disappointed. The Boy in the Field. Let's give it the famous History of Literature podcast bump. And if you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature. We have a PayPal me account now for those of you who are asking how to buy me a coffee with your PayPal. There you go. PayPal.me slash me. Whoops. That's PayPal.me slash Jack Wilson. Jack with an E. What else? We're on LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate Network, www.thepodglomerate.com. And what else? Oh, historyofliterature.com slash shop. I tweet at the Jack Wilson and Mike tweets at Literature SC, which of course stands for Literature Second Choice, because Jack Wilson is your first choice. Obvs. But Mike's a good sidekick. No, I'm kidding. It stands for Literature Supporters Club, of which Mike is the president, and I have grudgingly agreed to serve as one of the vice presidents. In spite of our artistic differences, my aesthetic and critical differences I have with that bastion of snobbery, the Literature Supporters Club, I should get that listener who wears a cheese head or what a cheese bra that she wears over her jacket... Of course, I should send her to the Literature Supporters Club and see what those Tony Manhattanites do. Probably sniff their noses so hard their monocles will fall out of into their out of their eyes and into their plates of caviar. Dear President, I imagine them saying, "Now can we oust Mr. Jack Wilson from the rolls?" And Mr. Jack Wilson jumps onto the table and cries, "You can't oust me. I self-oust." And then I swing from a chandelier, crash through the stained glass window of Milton's Paradise Lost, and shinny down the tree. Ha ha! I'm free! Until the president sends his men to grab me once again and dragoon me back into the club, where I sit through endless meetings of those snobby monsters telling me that I really should give David Foster Wallace another chance. Little do they know that while I was in the tree, I managed to stuff my ears with beeswax. I can't hear a thing, but I just stare ahead, my eyes vacant, the voice in my mind laughing at their futility. Laughing, laughing, laughing. I'm Jack Wilson. Did we run out of our theme song? Maybe we did, or maybe we're coming right to the close. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate, a Sonic Universe.